This is Conquering Columbus. Hey everybody, Andy here, filling in for Mike this week, and you're listening to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This week, Mike and Josh got the chance to sit down with Marty Gage and Spencer Merle from Lextant. Marty and Spencer are experts on user experience, also known as UX research, and early on they discussed what user experience really means. Well, experience is the emotional outcome of interacting with something. How do you wind up feeling? Confused, frustrated, confident, informed, aware of your surroundings. So ultimately, at the end of the day, as Spencer always says, it's not what you make, it's how you make people feel. That's what they remember. Later in the conversation, they discuss the importance of empathizing with your target audience and how defining value for your clients shapes your business. The design thinking process starts with something called empathize. Empathize with your user. And truly, every step after that should be based on what you learned in the first step. Our position is the first step. Today, everybody just thinks they get to go out and talk to people without a plan in their head. And we think it's it's a more systematic approach to it. And it is. It's not about empathizing with people. It's about defining value. What do they value in an experience? Mm-hmm. And then breaking that down into components so a company can figure out how to make that experience happen. So that book's really about the first step in the design thinking process, and it's our spin on it mm-hmm. after 30 years of trial and error. They wrap up with Marty and Spencer's take on what living uncomfortably means to them. I didn't know how to help these people. I didn't know what my, I didn't have a job description. Right. <laughs> I had a title that we made up, but you know, the journey's been, it's been very rewarding. You know, I think that we're doing stuff now that we couldn't even imagine, you know, 15 years ago. That part's been very rewarding. And I think being uncomfortable does force you to spend a lot more time concentrating, you know, because mm-hmm. it's it's not a good feeling to not know where you're going. It sounded like Mike and Josh had a great time chatting with Marty and Spencer and getting to learn a little bit more about their story as well as their new book. All right, that's it for me. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here. We got Josh in the booth today. Josh, how are we doing? Good, dude. How are you? Good. It seems like you're having trouble with that boom mic. Man, this is just not a good contraption. I don't know if you guys have this one figured out yet, but I'm not liking it very much. Yeah, yeah. my my microphone is uh, it's an issue. We're gonna down we're gonna downgrade Josh to the normal setup next time. But you can tell he's a gadget guy. Yeah, he likes yeah. the gadgets. He likes the gadgets. Yeah, he's got it all hooked up. But uh, no, it's, it's a uh, good day. And as you can tell, we got a couple guests on the show today, so might as well introduce him here. So today on the show, we're talking with Marty Gage and Spencer Merle, partners at Lexton. And Lexant focuses on helping businesses create customer experiences that win in the market. Spencer is the VP of Insight Translation, and Marty is the VP of Design Research at Lexant. And we are excited to have Marty and Spencer joining us today to talk about how Lexant came to be, what the company has going on today, their new book, and a whole lot more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Marty and Spencer. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for coming out and joining us today. And, uh, you know, appreciate you taking some time on a Tuesday evening to chat with us here. One of the first places we always like to start and maybe start with an introduction so everybody know who's talking, give a little background on yourself, your story, kind of how you got to where you are today. And uh, maybe we can start with Spencer. Sure thing. Uh, Spencer Merle, I'm a product designer by training. I graduated college 40 years ago. And Marty and I, we've been working together since 89, something like that, Marty. Yep. I always asked if I'm trying to find a date, I always ask Marty. He's mm-hmm. a savant with dates. So uh, I'll ask him a thousand times on this conversation about dates. So I was a designer and a consulting designer for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I've been at Lexington for 16 years, something like that. All right, Marty. I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. I moved to Ohio to go to graduate school at Wright State University to learn how to make things easy to use. I wound up on it with an internship at a design firm, which was one of the leading firms back in the 80s and 90s called Fitch, Richardson, Smith. 
There I met Spencer, and we started trying to figure this stuff out together. Mm-hmm. And took, the book took 30 years to write. And why Arkansas to Ohio? Uh, because graduate school in human factor psychology was here in Dayton. Human factor psychology? Yeah. So I'm guessing that plays well into design and customer experiences, which is what we're talking about today. I mean, so I guess I'm curious, you guys have both been working in this space for a long time, right? And with customer experience today, right? User experience, UX, whatever you want to call it, has become so big. But you guys have been a kind of a part of that growth and that that seen it from the beginning to today, especially through the internet era and everything else, like the changes to all the different ways people experience your product and your, and your fit. So I, I guess when you guys first started doing this, did you have any idea it was going to blossom into this? I was just about making stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and mostly it was physical stuff. And uh, I always found that I did a better job, had more success in the market if I had useful insights into what people really wanted. Mm-hmm. At the time... Design research was kind of a hit or miss thing. And sometimes you had good insight, sometimes you didn't. So you just had to guess. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to systematize it a little bit at Lexton, you know, so that you got a repeatable process, you get consistent results, and uh, and we don't run into one another, you know, while we're developing products like we used to. Mm-hmm. So talk about the hit or miss aspects from the early days. Like what, what, what made it so different than how you're able to get insights today? You know, uh, and Marty will tell you, it's 30 years of trial and error Mm -hmm. to figure out the process that we put in this book. Mm -hmm. And uh, even when we started at Lexton, uh, like I said, 16 years ago, we would go out and understand people, but we didn't know how to organize the information, the insights in a way that uh, people that make stuff could easily use it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's been part of the journey is how do you describe an experience to a corporation? so that they can act on it. And I know you're looking at it with blank stare like I'm talking <laughs> gibberish, but they, you know, it's the actual truth is you can go out, there's a lot of great research in the world yeah. stuck in a drawer or in a hard drive because nobody could figure out what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Might've been insightful, but it wasn't clear how to make the jump between that from that research to making something. And I think that we've got that part figured out now. So it's a lot smoother transition from yeah. us to our clients. Kind of resonates me with respect to like market segmentation, right? So like the, the ability to understand the theory on how you should segment markets to figure out what who you target as a company and where you go, it's pretty simple, right? But the actual practice of it and figuring out what insights are meaningful and what data points do I pay attention to is extremely difficult and takes an art. So for you guys, you know, as you look at all those different data points and you try to understand experiences and how to optimize things, how have you begun to... Uh, do you apply theories and constructs to that or frameworks to help make things more objective rather than uh, in the eye of the beholder? Well, I think we made up our own theories and that's what's in the book, mm-hmm. the six key principles, because the ones yeah. I was trained in, in human factor psychology, they didn't really work for figuring out what people want. They figure out they work more so when you have something and you need to make it easy to use and usable. Mm-hmm. So those theories work great in that. But, you know, this idea of user centered design, it's a different animal when you're in the fuzzy front end trying mm-hmm. to figure out what to make. So I guess the other thing, going back, I mean, you guys mentioned you've been working together for 30 years or more, and you guys have both been a part of Lexton for 16. So how did you both meet up? And then how did you end up with Lexton? Well, uh, Marty came in as a co-op in 1989. 1989? <laughs> Is there a ghost in here? Yeah, there <laughs> might be a ghost. So unfortunately, we got a little bit of trick-or-treat going That's on in okay. the office today. It's, it's very it's seasonal, Halloween. isn't it? It's very yeah. seasonal. You guys probably can't hear it on the podcast, but there is a uh, a spooky ghost outside making a lot of noise. Uh, so anyway, Marty came in as a co-op. Mm-hmm. He was in the research group. I was in the design group. And we worked there for, I don't know, 10 or 11 years. Marty went on, did something else. Mm-hmm. I went and we got back together 
and worked for a local company here called Tattletail, started our own company for five years. And then we joined Lexington at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And when you came to Lexington, what drew you both to Lexington? Well, you know, Chris, he's been committed his whole life. I guess it would, it had been, Lexington had been about nine years, going for nine years before we joined. Yeah. And, you know, he's all about studying the space mm -hmm. where people, regular people interact with a system, mm -hmm. any kind of a Product, system. service, package. That didn't matter. And, and Marty understood how to go in and find the real nuggets about an experience of what people are dreaming about. Mm -hmm. You know, because we don't talk, we, when we go out and do research, we don't talk about today. We talk about what does tomorrow look like for you mm -hmm. and get people to project themselves into a future and describe it. So that was why Marty joined. And I joined because, you know, that transition to design or to a company to use what we learned is so important that I was going to pioneer that part of it. So we made up a term, insight translation, and I had no idea what we were doing at the time, but it sort of started to pay a lot of dividends recently, I think. Yeah, I would say it was, I'd worked with Chris for several uh, years. As a contractor, I had my own company and uh, we just seemed to have a cohesive way of thinking together. It just made sense. Yeah, and so let's talk about user experience and define that, right? Because I think that while it's much more well-known today, UX, user experience, whatever you want to call it, it's still something that I think a lot of people hear and might have different meanings for. So how would you both, having been in the industry for a while, define UX? Well, experience is the emotional outcome of interacting with something. Mm -hmm. How do you wind up feeling? Confused, frustrated, confident, informed, aware of your surroundings. So ultimately, at the end of the day, as Spencer always says, it's not what you make, it's how you make people feel. That's what they remember. And then with the digitization of the world, it's gone to specifically, there's a lot of digital screen-based stuff. But mm -hmm. we see it products, service, frozen dinners. It's all user experience to us. Right? Yeah. Everything. So really any product, anything you interact with throughout your life has some type of user experience. Associated. Absolutely. If we took the example of say a car, right? You're like Honda Accent, right? That, that's got an experience of, hey, it's dependable, but not super comfy, right? But it's going to get me where I need to go. And, you know, you associate a lot of different feelings with that than say a Ferrari, that's which right. is going to be much more of a exciting experience, but also a costly one. Exactly. You want to feel safe. You want to feel relaxed. We do a lot in the automotive industry. So mm -hmm. we could tell you all about that. <laughs> yeah. Where have you guys found your niche and focus? Like, I mean, I got to imagine that like anything with respect to business, the more you can niche down and, and focus on one particular product category or technology, you can start to understand at a deeper level and become experts at it rather than spreading yourself thin. So have you guys found yourself really thriving in one particular area? Lexton as a business is heavily focused in automotive. They use, do so much uh, user testing of all the screens in the car. Because what happens is the person that makes the climate works in one building. Mm -hmm. person makes the radio lives in a different building. person makes the nav lives in a different building. They don't talk to each other. And it all comes into one screen in your car. Right. So making that easy to use and understandable and you don't get distracted when you're driving down the road and crash. Mm -hmm. That's been Lexington's core strength and we've grown into helping the automotive industry figure out what to make, what people want. You know, you got all these issues in automotive now. Mm -hmm. uh, what's it like to live with an electric vehicle? The issue used to be there was Google Play, there's Apple Play, and there's ours. How does ours compare to Google Play and Apple Play? It right. always lost. Everybody's lost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the ease of... The ease of Google and Apple Play, right? Like yeah. I just connect and it's good and I run off, right? So, I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as you've looked at the car industry in particular and, and overall, what's really changed? What have been the biggest changes over time 
for the UX. Well, you know, there used to not be a screen in a car. Right. You know, 10 years ago, we started working with uh, what was then called Chrysler and is now mm -hmm. called Stellantis. And they had a system and uh, we did a, a year's worth of usability on that system. And they won a JD Power Award mm -hmm. for the most easy to use system. And then everybody started knocking on the door because they just thought these guys got some magic. And really it was just it was just consistently applied fundamental usability, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, but it made a big difference in their, in their business. And it made a big difference in our business. Now about half of what we do is automotive, but mm -hmm. we do all kinds of stuff. I mean, we do the medical stuff and financial services. Marty was telling food. We do a lot of food and consumer products, medicine, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, and we've kind of been beating around the bush on this. We've mentioned the book yeah. several times, but <laughs> you know, you guys have condensed your 30 years of research into a we book. We have. User and, and experience I, I research. I thought it was an interesting question that you sent us by email. Why did you put everything you know into a book? Right. It, that is a good question. You know, it started out uh, doing a favor for a friend, the uh, dean of, col of the uh, Savannah College of Art and Design. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest design firm in the world. School. School in the world. And uh, he had a certification for a lot of different things, a lot of different softwares and stuff like that. He wanted certification for research. And he knew us because we'd been down there guest lecturing for a long time. And so we said, okay, we'll try to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. But and we didn't know what that meant. It took us five years, you know, of collaborating with a professor down there to get this curriculum laid mm -hmm. out. And it turned into, we didn't start out to write a book. We started out to teach a bunch of kids what we know. And it just turned into a book. You know? Sure. Yeah, sure. And something I noticed is I'm flipping through it here. I've got a copy. Thanks, guys, for bringing, yeah. bringing this copy. I'm definitely going to check it out. But I noticed that the experience with this book might be a little different than a book that you typically pick up. A lot of bright colors and key, like easy to read stuff. And it seems like you put some intent into how you, well, you know, designed the book. That's how we deliver research. Right. You know, you got to make it clear and you got to make it engaging mm -hmm. or you're never going to get anywhere inside of a company. And that's we tried to practice what we preach when we made it. We got a great design team that knows how to do that stuff, knows how to make books. Mm -hmm. And uh, neither one of us like to be long winded and confusing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an important part of user experience, right? Yes. Long winded and confusing does not lead to a good user experience. Simple uh, words, few syllables. Yeah. Few exactly. words, few words as possible. Exactly. So, another thing I'm curious about, right, with the book, and, and you mentioned like what we asked why would we put it all in a book, but. Aren't you worried that people are going to pick the book up and then not work with your team because, say, I got, you know, got plenty of information to do this myself now? I think I said earlier, I graduated college 40 years ago. 40 years ago, our professors told us that half of all new products fail in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Half. And, you know, you can imagine all the things that have changed in 40 years. You know, the Internet, cell phones, satellite communications. You know, the number is still 50 percent of all new products fail. Now, we think that this, this is our contribution. You know, I'm right. at the end of my career. I'm 66. This is my contribution to the industry. I hope people pick it up mm -hmm. and use it because I think it's it's embarrassing that we haven't improved that average over 40 years of uh, slaving away, frankly, slaving away. Do you think that that average might also be because people come up with products that are just never going to work in the first place? Well, how did they get there? Right. You know, we say they don't think about it. guessing is deadly. Yeah. Guessing is expensive. And people love to guess. They just love to guess. And we're telling there's a way to know. There's mm -hmm. a way to know what people want. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, pick up the book and read it. Practice it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not afraid. I want the world to adopt this way of thinking globally. Mm -hmm. I mean, the book's being translated into Mandarin. Uh, it's being mm -hmm. taught in Korea right now. It's only been out six months. So I believe if everybody adopts it, I'm not worried about it because 
that that book is scratching the surface. Right. You know, it, it points you in the right direction and can tell you how to do it. But there's a lot of details that, you know, you got to figure out. It's on a case-by-case basis each, each and every time you do it. But it's repeatable. So a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurial-minded or thinking about doing stuff like that. I'm curious, you know, if you wanted to start and thinking about a product, think about something you're coming up with from a UX perspective, what would you guys advise them to do other than pick up your book? <laughs> well, I would say the first thing is what you were talking about earlier, which is know your target audience. Make sure you have a clear definition of them. So many people can't write down on a piece of paper the key things that would describe the people that they want to buy or use whatever they're going to make. You would think big corporations have this figured out, right? Mm-hmm. One of the hardest things getting a project started is getting internal alignment on who we're actually going to go out and talk to. Mm-hmm. This book is about getting alignment inside of corporations. Mm-hmm. You know, first you go out and find the right people. You do the right work. You show them, show the organization the experience they're looking for. And then you work with them to find a way to deliver that experience. Exactly. Getting companies to grip on what people want and then a grip on what they're going to do about it. They skip the first step, a grip on what people want, and jump straight to what they're going to do. It's that guessing. It's that deadly guessing stuff. That guessing number comes up in terms of the marketplace and lack of success. Yeah. And as you think about, uh, I'm going to mess up the terminology, but it's out of Stanford Design-Centered. Oh, what is the Customer terminology? Customer-Centered Design? Customer. Design thinking process. Yeah. So so, uh, so starting go. kind of with the user in mind and then reversing that. Like as you guys look at those principles, I'm not familiar or not familiar with those. And it's it's actually, we talk about it in the book. We take a more nuanced perspective on it. Mm-hmm. The, the design thinking process starts with something called empathize. Empathize with your user. And truly, every step after that should be based on what you learned in the first step. Mm-hmm. Our position is the first step is... Uh, About defining value. Yeah, it is. But it, today, everybody just thinks they get to go out and talk to people without a plan in their head. And we think it's it's a more systematic approach to it. And... It is. It's not about empathizing with people. It's about defining value. What do they value in an experience? Mm-hmm. And then breaking that down into components so a company can figure out how to make that experience happen. So that book's really about the first step in the design thinking process, and it's our spin on it mm-hmm. after 30 years of trial and error. Well, that understanding value component is so incredibly difficult, right? It's like a lot of companies start and think that they've done that, but what they realize is that they might have misguessed how many people actually value that as a whole, right? And whether that's consistent across the population. Do you guys have methods within your methodology or techniques within your methodology to help mitigate that? Yes. We go out and talk to a bunch of people and then we look for patterns across what they say. In a lot of research, they will report back one-off stuff. And we don't think one-off, it's hard to get a company to align around what one person said. So we look at a pattern across a sample of people and we tell, and we say, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. That sample of people, what they're saying consistently is the truth and what you should do. And a lot of times it gets quantitatively validated by our clients. Mm-hmm. And consistently, 95% of the stuff that we discover comes back as important to people. Mm-hmm. So we help them discover new things to put numbers on. You can put numbers on anything you want to. But if you put numbers on the stuff you already know, your competitors are putting numbers on the same stuff as you. And you're going to be do, doing really good at Me Too products and services. Yeah. It, it sounds like, and I was actually doing a little perusal of the chapters in the book and some of the stuff in here, and I see a lot of research data and techniques, and it sounds like science and scientific approach is really important to what you guys do in, in finding the appropriate user experience. So what I'm wondering about is how does someone who doesn't have a scientific background find a way to pick this up and, and really apply it correctly? 
Well, that's one of the six key principles in the book is that it's uh, it's rigorous and the results are not due to chance. They're due to something that actually exists in the world. I, somebody, a lot of people share the same dreams for the future. Mm-hmm. So it shows you how to take that and just execute it at each step and how to be rigorous and to have a repeatable process, eliminate bias. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, grows a highly adaptive workforce, and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. And as you guys look back on the different products and and services that you've worked on and evaluated these experiences. Have you ever gone out and come to a conclusion and look back and realize that it fell short? And if so, why, why did it fall short? Like, why do you think that some experiences, despite how well you might know the theory or how might, how well you might go about the process still sometimes take a wrong turn. And maybe you've never, maybe that's never happened. That's well, I'd say this gives corporations a palette to paint from at the end of the day, you're, you, you're going to know the choices you can you have to make and mm-hmm. you can ignore them in order to deliver a great experience. And so many times, marketing people that get measured for the quarter don't like the fact that you have to wait till the end of the journey to make the sale, and they shove it into the beginning. (laughs) So what I'm going to answer your question is, I think companies making bad choices and everybody in the room not agreeing upon what people really want. I really like what you just said, right? Shoving the sale into the beginning of the journey, right? When someone comes in and says, huh, what's this? And you come over and say, oh, yeah, do you want to buy it? Like, that's, a, <laughs> that's not a good experience, right? Exactly. People come in and they're like, wait, whoa, hold, hold on. I don't even know what it is. Like, well, why should I be interested in this? So I, it's something you see a lot, right? Like everybody wants to convert things faster now, make it happen, right? But what really takes is a lot of buildup to bring the right people in at the right time. Exactly. We were talking about subscription services earlier before mm-hmm. this and talking about everybody's going subscription service. Well, you know, the time to offer the subscription services after you've had a great setup experience, because when you shove it in the front of the setup experience, you make the setup experience awful and painful. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to the end, nobody wants to subscribe because it was so awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you're measured for the quarter, you get scared. I can't wait till the end. I got to close it now. You right. know? So it we just keeps happening. Yeah. And so a question you guys probably have gotten way more than you enjoy. I'll bring it up because I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, when you look at the automotive sector in particular and you look at a company like Tesla and what they've done inside the vehicle and from my experience, a, a, a drastic 180 degree change from anything you'd ever experienced in a vehicle prior. A lot of people are following suit now and it's becoming more common to, to get into a car and feel like you feel in there. When that first came out, uh, did you guys evaluate that at all? Did you did you look inside of what they had done and what was your take on it? How did it how did it feel to you guys as being experts in this field? Well, our clients had us evaluate it. Mm-hmm. Most, I mean, anytime something new comes out, like if one company in Detroit's doing it, they're all three got the same question. What's it like to live with an electric vehicle? They all got that question. Mm-hmm. That's the question of the day. So they had us evaluate the experience on a wide range of variables. So we gave them a user perspective on Tesla. 
We've done it in relation to the screen. We've done it in relation to the usability, in relation to being electric in the first place when mm-hmm. you're studying what's the ideal electric vehicle experience. Because, you know, Detroit wants the world to go electric. Well, yep. all automotive. Marysville wants the world to go electric Honda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so as you were evaluating that and you looked at those things, what were the biggest limiting factors for electric at that time? And what have you seen change? Well, you know, the biggest limiting factor is that word range anxiety. You hear it all the time. Range anxiety that you won't be able to have charging stations, won't be able to get, you know, you'll run out of, of juice. But, you know, nowadays you look at Starbucks, they're putting charging stations in because they want to be a part of your lifestyle. Hmm. You know, if you go to a CVS and they don't have a charging station and Walgreens has a charging station, you're going to change where you go. Mm-hmm. So there's an infrastructure in place and it actually impacts people's daily lives. If you take a road trip, you're going to pick a hotel that's got a charger. Mm-hmm. So it's, they're everywhere now. Yeah. It's interesting to think about how a change in something like a car that's used by everybody and frequently in that user experience can impact the user experience at a grocery store. Yeah. Because like you said, that's a different part of the user experience. Can I charge my car there? Well, that that makes me feel pretty good. Uh-huh. Right? Free charging of my car while I go to the grocery store. Well, that's a big change to the user experience based on what started as a, what people thought was never going to happen, right? This electrical car movement, when it started, there's a lot of people going, nah, it's not going to take on, right? You know, nobody's yeah, going to I mean, it. they had electric cars in the 20s. Right. I mean, this is not the first time we've seen electric cars, but these cars are so flipping fast, mm-hmm. you know? A thousand horsepower, Tesla plant is a thousand horsepower. Oh, and that experience, right? And when you it's get it, it, it's just, that acceleration is a lot different. It's the, the one thing getting. they can do mm-hmm. that you have to pay a quarter of a million dollars to do with a, with mm-hmm. a gas engine. You know, you have to buy mm-hmm. a Ferrari to get that experience that you can get from electric motors in your wheels. So let's talk about the future of the online customer experience, right? That's a little different than, than everything we talked about so far. So obviously everybody's thinking about their online customer experience and how that changes. But where do you guys see that going? What do you see the biggest trends right now? Well, first of all, the trend is customer experience, and it's a thing. Five years ago, customer experience wasn't a big thing. It's just exploded as a thing. It's the new frontier in marketing. So I think where it's going is having what we were talking about earlier, having a value proposition that can live outside the conference room in a company, Mm -hmm. having true value that people really want. And there's so much customer experience, blah, blah, blah out there that you got to have value or you're not going to succeed. Yeah, that is the, that's the magic. You know, right now inside of corporations, the customer is a different thing to the marketing team than it is to the design team, than it is probably to the R&D team too. It's another way of saying it. The customer is very fragmented. They don't have a picture across the organization Mm -hmm. about what kind of experience they're going to deliver because they all go out and do their separate work to understand the customer. And, you know, and it's a patched together thing at the end. It's always a patched together thing. So we think, you know, the future of, of doing this right is for a company to agree on the experience they're going to deliver and across the company say, yes, this is our target. This is what we're going to do. And I'm, I'm sure that eventually it's going to get there. But right now, these big companies, are they're just too siloed mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. As Spencer always says, you get what you measure when you're being measured on the quarter for selling mm-hmm. canned tomatoes. It's going to drive your daily behavior. Right. Are there any metrics that you see people use often that you think are maybe flawed? I'm curious about this one. Well, Do you guys it, see any commonly used metrics that- We have a point of view on it. You know, okay. we go out and understand the experience and the customer has told us, they've given us all these targets that they want you to hit for them. Mm-hmm. We use that their 
definitions of those targets mm -hmm. to measure concepts. You know, you can measure a lot of things, but we think what they asked us to make is the way you should measure your things. Mm -hmm. You can measure all your competition against those same metrics to see how well they're delivering it. I mean, we did this for uh, Lincoln. They wanted to understand what luxury was. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we went out and defined luxury HMI from, you know, luxury owner's perspective. And then we created metrics and they measured themselves their new concepts against the Japanese or the uh, German companies that were eating our lunch at the BMW, moment. BMW, yeah, Audi, yeah, 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 et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And uh, so they could see exactly where they were falling short, mm -hmm. even with their new concepts. And consequently, they could improve. And, and, you know, and Lincoln has done very well in the last few years. Uh, their uh, consumer reports mm -hmm. give them very high marks for the Navigator and the Aviator and all those cars. And I think they paid attention. I would say to answer your question, you know, we do a lot of stakeholder interviews with senior leaders and companies to understand what are their business objectives and what do they need to learn from their target audience in order to achieve those objectives. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions we always talk about is what do you measure? What do you wish you could measure? And they're all starting to realize and acknowledge that all the stuff they measure is all about them. None of the stuff they measure is about their target audience. Revenue, win rate, yeah. sales cycle, everything Number else. of installed users. Right. Customer happiness. I mean, that's so, you see that more, I think, SaaS companies, right? They, mm -hmm. They're really hyper-focused on that. Like, we've got a lot of, you know, NPS. The NPS is the one that everybody talks Absolutely. about. Right? Everybody's oh, yeah. got an NPS. What a, what a not nightmare that is. You get a score and you don't know why you got that score. Right. So I don't know how that everybody's helps happy, anybody. But I don't know why they're happy or I don't everybody's know. sad, but I who know. knows why. Yeah, it's got to be frustrating to say, okay, then we got to guess right. what to do right. Our, one of our clients at HP, uh, she uh, adopted the metrics approach we talked about. They had some challenges in certain areas of the business, had negative NPS scores, mm -hmm. and they used the stuff in the book to turn that around. Nice. Right, it's big. Negative NPS score is not good. Nobody wants to have a no. negative one of those. Yeah. There's no future in that. That's not, yeah, that, ain't, that, ain't, that ain't what you want to see on the quarterly report. And you think about those metrics. Uh, that's another piece that's interesting, too. Like when you think about something like Blue Ocean Strategy to bring another theory into the, into the conversation, and you talk about how they try to look at a group of users or a segment of users and figure out what's actually meaningful to them. And then, you know, where do we sit amongst our clients? But breaking that apart and looking at, you know, the value chain across uh, using a product or service, how do you how do you begin to figure out which ones? And maybe you answered in the last question, like which ones are actually meaningful metrics, right? Are you just simply asking the market themselves and seeing what they come back with, and then saying, okay, this is you told this is us where you benchmark this. it. Well, you told us this, mm -hmm. the ideal experience. We made this. Mm -hmm. How does this stack up against what you told us? It's right. it seems like the most common sense approach that I can imagine. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why everybody doesn't do it like this, frankly. Yeah, I mean, we give people the tools to describe how they want to feel in their future. What are your dreams for the future? What's got to happen to make your dreams come true? And what's the product or service got to deliver in terms of benefits that's going to make that happen? Yeah. And, you know, in your guys' book, right, we talk, we've talked a lot about it, but a lot of that stuff is covered here, right? So, you know, I see even in the introduction, we, talk, we mentioned design thinking process. You guys yeah. touch on that in the yeah. introduction of the book making experiences actionable, but really important kind of where we're talking about here is choosing a research approach, finding your target user and capturing clear data, right? So some of these things that, you know, that's where I would imagine you would be capturing those, hey, what do you want us to build that's questions? Right. And you know, that book was written, like I said, that book evolved. 
there's a 10 week quarter at the Savannah College of Art and Design. Mm -hmm. There's 10 chapters in that book. Makes sense. That's, that's no coincidence. That's right? that. You know, and, and we had a professor come to our office. She would talk about her curriculum. She would work on projects with us. She would take what she learned back to Savannah, test it on the kids, see how they responded to it. And then we refine the curriculum from there. So it was really self-developed curriculum of Savannah. But it's the thinking we use at Lexington. That's so, you know, absolutely. It works for all organizations all around the world. We do global research and mm -hmm. it's all stuff we've done is straight from that book. Yeah. So if people want to find the book, where should they go? Everywhere. They it's go everywhere. everywhere. Amazon. Yeah. Amazon. Then, you know, Barnes and Noble. Anywhere you can buy books, it's there. All right. Okay. And, uh, you know, as we kind of wrap up, Josh, you got anything, you got anything uh, left on your end? Nope. He's shaking his head. So we're going to head towards some of our last questions of the show, gentlemen. But uh, the first one we've got is what are you guys' goals for the future? Where are you guys heading from here? I know, you know, you guys mentioned that you might be looking at wrapping up the career. What do you, what do you want to do after that? What are you thinking about for the next five, 10 years? Really? Sure. I, I am wrestling with that right now. Wrestling with it. You know, I, 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 sometimes I think I could just sit home and pick my nose and drink, you know, and just have fun. <laughs> and then, but then I think, I don't know, it might go crazy. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I'm hoping to see that this book mm -hmm. will get some traction in the world. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see that happen. I'd like to see it be a positive experience for Lexton, mm -hmm. you know, to expose us to more people. I'd like to see that. But other than that, you know, I, uh, I've been work working for 40 years in the consulting business. Right. You know, when you talk about you had a question about being uncomfortable. Yeah, it's coming up. Coming uh, up. I, I don't want to rush you. But anyway, I don't know. I, <laughs> the question is, I don't want You're ahead of me. <laughs> you know, that the, the consulting business is 100% being uncomfortable all the time. Right. You know, every project, you got you to learn a new industry. You got to learn how to work with a new group of people. Mm -hmm. And it's just constant, constant change. And I don't know why. I think it's because I have a short attention span, maybe, that I like the excitement of that mm -hmm. panic and that being uncomfortable. Yeah. But after 40 years of it, you know, it's kind of a grind, man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I'm ready to rest. I, I feel that. Well, I want to support the book being adopted globally, the thinking in the book being adopted globally. I think it changes the way we interact with our clients. Mm -hmm. uh, we are up at Ford presenting to their design thinking team last week, a whole bunch of people. And the guy that brought us in, it started changing how he was thinking about his internal processes. So it changes how we're going to start working with our clients in the future, I believe. So I'm excited about that. Marty's long-term plan is to be a teacher. Teacher? Yeah. Well, I like I like going down there and working with students. And you know, you go down there, Savannah's a beautiful city. It's, it's nice. got a massive art school vibe. It's just mm -hmm. such a cool scene. It's people from all over the world. I love being there. So I want to travel around the world and teach. That's what I want to do. I like it. I like it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that brings us to our last question of the show. And, you know, Spencer beat me to it. I'm sorry. But that's okay. That's okay. Uh, we've actually had other people do the same thing before. They read the outline. They're like, oh, so living uncomfortably. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. We're not there yet. You, uh, should, you shouldn't send out the questions ahead of time. <laughs> but uh, so living uncomfortably. Live uncomfortably. That's the theme of our show for topic. You know, we chose it because of the... Uh, you know, in our opinion, right, when we think about living uncomfortably, right, it means that anybody who gets anywhere yeah. right, in life, they're not going to be always sitting back and, and waiting and yeah. not pushing themselves. So what do you guys think of the phrase, how does it apply to your life's career? And uh, maybe this time we'll start with uh, Marty. I think the phrase is great. The way it applies to my life is actually the stuff I do in that book. I've traveled all around the world and sat and listened to what people's dreams for the future are and all the stuff that keeps them from having their dreams for the future today. I've been on couches in China with no cushions, 
I've been attacked by fleas in interviews. And I was sitting there scratching my Hopefully legs. Not here. No, no, this is in other parts of the <laughs> world, yet. you know. Not yet. Uh, so going all over the world and listening to other people's experiences of today and hearing their dreams for the future always sort of keeps me living on the edge and constantly seeing the world through different eyes other than my own. I like it. Spencer? Well, you know, I guess it, when I moved from being a designer full time, mm-hmm. you know, making stuff, drawing stuff, and went to a research company, mm-hmm. hugely uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, I, I I didn't know how to help these people. I didn't know what my, I didn't have a job description. Right. <laughs> I had a title that we made up. But, you know, the journey's been, it's been very rewarding. You know, I think that we're doing stuff now that we couldn't even imagine, you know, 10, 20 or 15 years ago. And uh, that part's been very rewarding. And I think being uncomfortable does force you to spend a lot more time concentrating, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not a good feeling to not know where are you going? Yeah. Easy to get complacent. That's right. right? So. Absolutely. Our CEO, I remember he used to have a thing on, uh, he had all these sayings on the wall right. a long time ago, like 25 years ago. One of them was, you can't shine shit. One of them was, when you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rot. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So I think that goes with what you're saying. Yeah. I think that fits right in. Well, gentlemen, it's been great talking to both of you. Marty Spencer, thanks so much for joining us, talking a little bit about your book. And, uh, Appreciate your time today. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. It's been fun. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to buy the book, it is User Experience Research, Discover What Customers Really Want by Marty Gage and Spencer Merle. And you can find that anywhere you can find books. So uh, if you want to hear more interviews just like this one, if you enjoyed this and learned a lot, then go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. Tune these interviews in every week. We release on Mondays. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll talk to you next week. Next week.